Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robert Acosta speaking, chair of our special program series, and we are glad to be back with our special program and welcome a very dear friend who has come back to us, thank God, from a, a tough illness. He's a strong man, and we appreciate it. And we're going to present at this time Ira Fistel, who will talk about railroading, the history of railroads. I'll, he'll give the proper title of the topic in the United States and I think Canada. Ira, welcome back to Accessible World, and the telephone is yours. And oh, star six you, is mute, everybody, except for the speaker. <clears throat> okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Uh, this is probably the first and perhaps the only talk about trains and about railroads that you're ever going to hear that starts with some relevant laws of physics. Uh, uh, the railroad is a product of a number of conditions that are uh, true uh, about the world and the physical world that we live in. For example, one of the laws of physics was a law of motion. An object at rest will remain at rest unless and until it is subjected to some force which moves it. An object in motion will remain in motion until it is stopped by some force applied to it. All right, that's one thing. A second, friction results when two objects rub against each other. Friction is resistance, and it, uh, when it occurs, it can create heat, uh, it can create uh, static electricity, another thing, and it can also stop an object in motion or slow it down, depending on how much friction there is. Third, gravity is a force which applies to any uh, and all objects on Earth. And a fourth one, when water is heated to approximately 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it vaporizes. Its molecules expand as the water is heated to the boiling point and then turns into steam. When that occurs in an enclosed space, the steam needs more room than it did when it was water because the molecules have, have spread out. And consequently, the steam tries to, to get out of the enclosed chamber where there isn't enough room for it. And if it can't, eventually, if it's powerful enough, it will break through the enclosed container. Extremely powerful. So there are four uh, laws of physics that are immutable and unchangeable and have existed far be, uh, before there ever were humans on Earth. Okay. Now we go back to prehistoric or primitive man. You're a caveman, and uh, you let's see you kill an animal for food. 
you can't eat it all at one time, so you want to pick, take some of it home. How do you get it home? Well, you pick it up in your hands and you carry it. After all, you know, you have no other tools or anything. This is before the, in, in any discoveries of any other thing. So you either have to hold it in your hands and carry it, put it over your shoulder and carry it, maybe put it on your head and carry it, as a number of uh, women in, in other countries do today. They still carry you know, large uh, objects on their heads. But the point is that the human being carries it himself or herself. Well, in time, humans found that animals could be used to carry far heavier loads for much further than a human being can walk carrying a heavy, a heavy load. And consequently, animals were domesticated, including, but not, not limited to, dogs, oxen, horses, donkeys, camels, elephants, and all of them were used to carry something heavier than a man could carry it, further than a man could carry it. So animal power became a principal source of uh, how to move something heavy across land. At some time also, man discovered that if he put a boat on water, you know, a raft or a boat on water, he could carry, the raft could carry, or the boat could carry much more, far more, that he could carry or that an animal could carry. And when he coupled that with the idea of putting up a sail and using the wind to push the, the raft or the ship, what you had was a sailing ship. And the, that was the most efficient, cheapest, and most capable way of moving heavy goods from one place to another. And what's more, it could be used on any body of water, including artificial bodies of water uh, that were dug and called canals. Now, if you have a canal, you're probably going to be trying to uh, move through land <clears throat> on that canal. That's why you dug it in the first place. But you always didn't ha you didn't always have wind to push. What you did have was an animal walking on a path along the canal's bank and pulling the canal barge by a rope. And that's the state of transportation by canal as it existed in the early part of the 19th century. By that time, of course, man had discovered AIDS to how to carry things over land. Probably the earliest was a sled. People found out that if you took a raft, for example, and pulled it over land, it was much harder to pull, but it could still carry much more than a man could hold himself. 
then I think it was the ancient Egyptians, perhaps, who discovered that if they put rolled logs, round logs, underneath the raft, replacing them in front as the raft ran over them and uh, they'd be behind the raft, keeping the logs under the raft at all times, the raft would move much more easily, could be pulled much more easily with heavier goods on it or even much heavier goods. That led to the discovery of the wheel. Why was the wheel such a huge advance? Because when you have a wheel, you have a 360-degree round surface, but no, only one small piece of that 360-degree surface is touching the ground at any time. The rest of it is going around and around and around continuously, but only a small surface is in contact with the road or the ground. That means that there is much less friction developed when a wheel turns than if you pulled the raft, uh, you know, the platform on the ground by itself. The wheel was a huge, incredibly huge advance. Another time, in countries where there's a lot of snow and ice, man found out that if he took the raft, you know, the platform raft, and put strips underneath it, long, elongated strips that lifted the raft off the ground by itself so that only the strips underneath it touched the ground or the road, they found that the raft moved more easily. And if there's a lot of snow on the ground or ice, the raft would slide. And a horse could be attached to it, or a pack of dogs could be attached to it, and thus you develop the dog sled. And that, too, was a huge advance. And again, for the same reason, a far smaller surface is in contact with the, with the ground or the road than if you had the whole raft being pulled along the ground or along the road. So these were all things that were learned over a period of time as to how to move goods or or people, for that matter. The easiest and most efficient, of course, was to use water. Why? Because water is not a hard surface, and there's much less friction of a sh when a ship moves through the water than there is uh, when it, the uh, bottom of the raft, the platform, is being pulled along the ground. So water transport was the most desirable and was used wherever possible. But there were problems with that, too. Also a problem with the laws of physics. Water refuses to run uphill. Very difficult. It takes a lot of energy to make water run uphill. And if you don't have a lot of energy to spare 
uh, you can't get that water to run uphill. Secondly, if you're talking about a river or a stream or anything of that nature, there are currents. In the Mississippi River, the current runs at a rate of two to three miles per hour. doesn't sound like a lot, but think of it this way. If you have to go against the current, you have to go not that that much, uh, not the same speed as the current. You have to go more than the same speed of the current to go upstream because you're fighting the current. Take it this way. A Mississippi River steamboat, and I love these things. I've been on them many times and lectured on them whatever. A Mississippi River steamboat can go down the river at the rate of, let's say, 11 miles per hour, powered by steam at 8 miles an hour, plus 3 miles an hour in the current. So the downstream boat goes 11 miles an hour. The upstream boat, you have to subtract the mileage that the current uh, is flowing at, and you have to go Against that, so your eight miles an hour boat minus the three mile an hour current is now going upstream at five miles an hour, less than half as fast. That's another problem with water transport. Now let's say you don't have a powered boat. You have to row it or you have to keel haul it, you know, put a pole in the water and uh, and push the pole and uh, get upstream that way. Going upstream was much harder than going downstream, and there was nothing much anybody could do about that. That's another problem with water. It freezes in the winter, and a third problem is it dries up at other times of the year when there's not a lot of rain and there's not enough water in the in the river course. And the boat can't go because its bottom is hitting the ground. So that's called grounding the boat. Well, all of those were problems with transport by water. But despite all the problems, water transport was the preferred method for doing anything wherever you could use it whatever and whenever you could use it. All right. So what do we have? At the beginning of the 17th century, you had basically two or three sources of power. Muscle power, whether human muscle power or animal power. Wind power, power of the current where you could use it downstream. In other words, natural forces plus muscle power, animal or human. That supplied the the energy needed to move that object. Remember I said an object remains at rest unless it has a force to move it? Well, these these, uh, were the sources of power to apply that kind of force for transportation. And there weren't any others, either muscle power, human power, wind power, water power. Okay. Next point. 
at the beginning of the 18th century, nobody had any inkling that any other power could be harnessed. And here is where one of the great names in history comes in. Sometime around the year 1720, a Scottish boy of about 12 years old, I don't know exactly how old he was, but you know, 12 or 13 years old, was sitting in his grandmother's kitchen in Scotland, and his grandmother put a pot of water on the fire, you know, over the fire, and put a lid on the pot to heat the water. And as Jamie Watt watched the pot, uh, you know, watch pot never boils. Well, watch pot does boil sooner or later. And Jamie saw that the lid of the pot began to jiggle. And eventually, uh, the lid was pushed enough off the pot so that steam escaped from it. Now, people must have seen this literally millions of times over the course of the many, many centuries in which there were humans on Earth. Uh, human life on Earth goes back thousands of years. Uh, and this, this, uh, question, this uh, event of steam coming out of a, a lid, pushing a lid, must have been observed by millions over the years. And nobody thought to do anything about it. Nobody saw potential in it. But Jamie Watt realized what apparently nobody else either realized or took action about. He realized that the power of steam could lift the lid off the pot. It only needed to boil the water long enough that the water would turn to steam, hot enough and long enough, and the steam did the work. He thought, well, if the steam can lift the uh, lid off Granny's teapot, why can't we use steam to power something else? Supposing we use that, that steam power to make a rod move. If we have a rod uh, in an enclosed space, instead of the lid of the pot, let's say it's a rod. And this rod is connected to a wheel. Well, when the steam makes the rod move, pushes the rod out of the pot, the wheel turns at the other end of the rod. And that was the origin of the steam engine. Jamie Watt built the first successful steam engines and this was all about uh, as an adult now, after he, you know, uh, years after he'd seen the pot in his granny's kitchen going off. But at any rate, Watt's steam engine found immediate uses. One of them was to power loom. A loom had previously had to have been powered by hand power or foot power. You know, you'd press the treadle and the treadle would make the, uh, the loom work. Well, you could, could instead of uh, pushing the treadle by hand, you could hitch a steam engine to the treadle, um, a steam engine, rather, to the uh, loom, and the loom would be worked by steam power. 
Are you okay, Dad? One other way in which looms were worked before steam was by water power, the power of falling water. You'd have a mill, which would have a big wheel, where the water fell, could pour water on the wheel. And that would turn the wheel, and the wheel would turn the cranks and make the mill work. But the question was, how do you get the water to go downhill where there's no hill? So waterfalls became sources of power, but only where there were waterfalls. Steam power was mobile. You could put a steam-powered mill anywhere where you could get fuel and uh, to the fire to be uh, to heat the steam, heat the water hard enough to be uh, hot enough to be steam, so that a steam engine, by its very nature, had advantages that falling water power didn't have. Once again, the power comes from the same source, the water, but it's used in a different way and a more efficient way when it's turned into steam. generates much more power. Okay, so those were the only power sources really available. Animal power, human power, water power, uh, wind power, until Jamie Watt came on the scene. Well, by the late 18th century, the Industrial Revolution was underway powered by steam. It started in Britain because that's where Jamie Watt lived, and he was the first to build steam-powered engines. By the end of the 18th century, there were powered steam-powered mills in other places, uh, and one, endeavor, one uh, Frenchman actually built a steam-powered car didn't look much like a modern automobile. It was a platform with a boiler on it, with a fire under the boiler, and the fire made the steam, and the steam was used to push cranks that made the wheels go round. don't remember the man's name, but he ran his steam car through the streets of Paris for a you know, short time uh, until they made him stop because he was scaring all the horses. <laughs> But at any rate, steam was beginning to find uses. In 1807, an American inventor whose name was Robert Fulton took the next great step in applying steam power to transportation. He built a boat, which he called the Claremont. He built it in New York on the Hudson River, and he had put a steam engine on that boat. And then he proceeded to demonstrate how the Claremont could go up the Hudson River against the current all the way from New York to Albany, 150 miles in a single day, upstream. This was a huge revolution. All of a sudden, the, the uh, current no longer made it impossible to go upstream with a volume of goods in a reasonable time. Immediately, the keel boat began to disappear. 
You know, the great keelboat man of legend was Mike Fink. You hear stories about him. Disney has done Mike Fink's keelboats at Disneyland. Well, the keelboat was doomed from the moment Robert Fulton's Claremont demonstrated that a steamboat could go upstream against the current and carry enough fuel to make it work, uh, worthwhile to build a steamboat. That was 1807. No less than four years after Robert, Robert uh, Bolton built the first successful steamboat, Nicholas Roosevelt, who was an ancestor in the Roosevelt family, took the idea of Robert Fulton's and built a boat in Pittsburgh, steamboat. He called it the New Orleans, and his intention was to sail the steamboat downriver to New Orleans and back up the Mississippi, up the Ohio, all the way to Pittsburgh. And he set out in 1811 to make the first steam-powered voyage on the inland rivers of the United States. That was quite an experience. Uh, the New Orleans sailed down the Ohio River. You can use its steam power, if it, or it could all just drift with the current. But it, eventually, it ran into the Mississippi, where the Ohio and Mississippi joined at Cairo, Illinois, and started down the Mississippi. And what didn't it didn't get very far on the Mississippi River, because this was, I think, February or March of 1811. And that was the date of the great New Madrid earthquake, the strongest earthquake we know to have existed in North America up to that time. The New Madrid quake was named for the town of New Madrid, Missouri. Uh, they would You would call it Madrid if you were Spanish, but... Uh, in Missouri, it was New Madrid. Uh, it was felt as far away, believe it or not, as Boston. That was over a thousand miles, probably closer to fourteen hundred miles away. It was so strong that it reversed the course of the Mississippi River for a while. The river ran north instead of running from north to south. Eventually, of course, it receded and uh, went back to its normal pattern. But the New Orleans was caught right in the middle of the New Madrid quake and obviously didn't go anywhere for a while. But the boat didn't sink. It was tied up to the bank. And after the quake was over, Nicholas Roosevelt and his wife, who was aboard, and the crew continued to steam down the river and reached New Orleans and turned back upstream and went all the way back upstream to Pittsburgh in 1811. Well, you can imagine what happened then. <clears throat> Everybody wanted a steamboat on the Mississippi River. And they were built quickly, and they were built cheaply, and they lasted about maybe three or four years each before they either blew up or sunk or collided with something. Uh, steamboating was enormously profitable, however, because you could carry a tremendous amount more more cotton more agricultural products, more imported furniture, uh, you know, more tools, more more of anything, livestock. Uh, you could carry cows and ducks and chickens and sheep and uh, hogs on a steamboat. 
You didn't have to drive them over land anymore. So all of these things made steamboating very profitable, and the boats were you know, built cheaply because nobody expected them to last forever. And if your boat you know, uh, blew up, you built another one. You had the money. So that's how the inland rivers became the upstream as well as downstream arteries. Now, this is a lesson by itself. When the rivers could only be used basically down downstream, the great port of the United States was New Orleans because New Orleans is at the just above the mouth of the Mississippi River. And the Mississippi drains two-thirds of the North American continent from the uh, Allegheny Mountains in the east, northeast, all the way out to the Rockies in the west. The tributaries of the Mississippi that flow into it, largely the Ohio, the Missouri, the Illinois, the Wisconsin, the Arkansas, river after river after river flows down into the Mississippi, and it all comes into New Orleans. New Orleans had been founded early in the 18th century, but by the early first quarter of the 19th century, it was the busiest, most important port in America. Why? Because it was from New Orleans that you could use ocean-going shipping. You take the uh, goods off the, the, the steamboats, uh, off, a, off any boat that you got in New Orleans, put it on a sailing vessel, and ship it anywhere around the world by wind power over the ocean. All right, so that's why the boat was called the New Orleans and why New Orleans became the great port in the United States. So far, as you may have noticed, I haven't said a word about a railroad. But that's coming very soon. 1811 steamboating became uh, feasible and popular. And then people turned the question of how do we get to use steam power over you know uh, where where we can use it on the rivers? But what happens when you get to a waterfall or a mountain range and the water won't go uphill? What do you do? Your boat stops there, and you have to take everything off and get around the uh, the uh, hazard or the the barrier. Wouldn't it be nice, people thought, if we could have a steamboat that would go on land? Well, obviously you can't have a steamboat that goes on land, although the state of Pennsylvania tried the next best thing, but I'll tell you about that in a little while. Meanwhile, in England, there arose a problem with the steam engine. The steam engine needs fuel to burn, lots and lots of fuel. And England had forests, all right, but the forests in England belonged to the, the tallest trees belonged to the crown, um, to the king, and were used for masts for boats, for ships. So you couldn't use that. The forests that they could use were pretty quickly 
uh, reduced in size, and more and more demand for steam power meant more and more demand for fuel. Well, there was an alternative fuel available, but it wasn't easy to get at. Coal was known as fuel far, far before the 19th century or the 18th century, for that matter. But coal had to be dug out of the ground. First of all, you had to find it. Secondly, you had to dig it out. And when you did dig it out, you had to move it to where your steam engine was, because you couldn't move the steam engine, remember. The steam engine was not movable unless it was on a boat, and you still had to get it to the boat. So how do you move heavy loads of coal? Well, the English found a way to do it, and it's very, very interesting. The Romans, as you undoubtedly know, occupied the British Isles for about three or 400 years around uh, the opening of the... Uh, current uh, millennium, not the current millennium, the current series of millenniums. Um, and the Romans left roads. Everybody knows the Romans built roads, and they built them well. They built them for their troops to march on. But uh, the roads were paved with stone for easy marching. And the Roman roads survived the Roman occupation by something like fourteen hundred years before they were during which they were used to haul carts on. And if you had a uh, large number of carts for fourteen hundred years, you got ruts carved into the stone. All right, how wide were those ruts? The Romans used their carts for the first three or four hundred years on those roads, and their carts were wide enough to be pulled by one horse. Okay? Not wide enough for two horses, but uh, just one horse could pull a, a single cart, and the width of the cart couldn't be more than about, oh, say, six feet. The wheels of the cart, therefore, had to be under the cart and had to be no wider than the cart. And the cart had to be wide enough for one horse to pull it. All right. The Roman width between the wheels of their carts was approximately a little bit under five feet in modern measurements. And so the ruts that the Roman carts made in the roads way back around the year 100 or so uh, beginning about that, those ruts were still in the roads in the early 19th century. And for years, the carters who used those roads realized that <clears throat> if they built their wagons so that they had one horse to pull the, the cart and the wheels of the cart were so set as to fit into the grooves in the Roman roads, that the carts moved more easily and didn't sway and go off sideways, and they were much easier to pull. Aha! This was an inspiration. And what the British, who needed to move heavy loads of coal, did, 
was to pull those loads of coal in carts built to fit in the grooves, just like uh, carts for uh, for lighter materials have been used for so many years. And the gauge, the distance between the ruts, was in modern terms, modern uh, measurements, about four feet, eight and a half inches. Roughly, give or take an inch or two here or there. So the cart wheels were set four feet, eight and a half inches apart. And the horses pulling those carts were a lot happier than horses that had to pull carts without having the ruts to help them. They could pull more and they could go faster. And they could put more loads on the cart because it didn't slew from one side to the other. All right. This is the state of things when the English are trying to pull loads of coal from coal mines to the places where the coal was needed for mills, for milling. Next step. Steam power was applied to to boats successfully in 1811. What about uh, finding a way to put steam power to work pulling carts? Well, you couldn't very well use the Roman roads with steam-powered equipment, partly for the same reason that uh, the Frenchman's uh, steam-powered cart couldn't be used in Paris. It scared the horses. <laughs> and also, uh, it would make, it make a kind of a mess of the roads if you tried to do this with a steam-powered vehicle. Um, and how do you get around it? You know, when one wants to pass another one or go the other direction, how do you do it? You can't. But it is possible, said some Englishmen, that we could build something akin to the cart roads, the Roman cart roads, except built specifically to haul wagons full of coal. How do we do this? Well, nobody had the answer for a few years. But between 1811, when steamboats became practical, and 1825, during those 14 years, People were experimenting with new devices to use steam to pull carts. And the revolution came from a father and son team, George Stevenson and his son Robert. In 1825, George and Robert Stevenson built a locomotive. They called it the Rocket. It had a steam engine. Uh, which drove the wheels through rods that were connected to a wheel from from the steam engine. And it was built to run on rails. Instead of using grooves in the road, you built up rails above the road, above the level of the ground. And the engine, steam locomotive, would run on the rails. Now, how did it do this? Well, remember I talked about the wheel having a very small area of friction 
against the object below it. When the rail is the object, the point of contact between the wheel and the rail is something like the size of a dime. Imagine that. The, the point of contact where the weight of the engine, the wheels of the engine, touch the, road, the, the, the rail is the size of a dime. That means there's a lot of weight on that one small area, but very little friction. And Mr. Stevenson's rocket could, was proven to be able to pull a, a cart at a rate of something like 15 miles an hour. This was unheard of. Nobody had ever traveled that fast since mankind existed. And people were terrified of the idea of going 15 miles an hour. We'll be killed. We'll, we'll die. Of, uh, we won't be able to breathe. You know, Nobody knew what, what could happen. Well, George and Robert Stevenson also had to invent a rail for their engine to run on. And it was Robert this time who did it. Uh, originally, People experimented with wooden rails, but the wooden rails were always breaking and they couldn't support enough weight. Uh, wooden rails with iron tops, well, they, that was fine as long as the iron tops stayed and fastened to the wood. But uh, the iron tops had a nasty habit of breaking away from the wood and curling up. And when they curled up, they could go right through the floor of a, of a cart. And this was not nice. <laughs> Those were called snakeheads. Robert Stevenson came up with the idea of using an all-iron rail. And he, being an engineer who was a brilliant engineer, he figured out that the proper shape, the most efficient shape for an iron rail, was to make it in the shape of a letter T, capital T. It had a wide spot at the top and then a narrower place carrying all the weight under the T. And then you actually could call it a letter I because it had a flat bottom. Now, in England, up until very recently, up until after World War II, the rails were built to very much the same pattern as Robert Stevenson's original rail. And they sat in what were called chairs. Some lines in England still have these, but not not any of the main power, main lines. Um, but the chairs held the rail into a, uh, what would you call it, a metal clamp, sort of, that was bolted down to a cross tie to hold the gauge. And the rail was held into the clamp by putting wedges on each side of the rail to hold it firmly into the clamp. That was the way British track was built. And it was the way it was built right down till the 1960s. But Robert Stevenson's idea of the T-rail also caught on in other places as the Great I-rail, with a flat bottom that could be spiked directly to a wooden tie, cross tie. 
And that was the way American railroads were built, not from the very beginning, but from approximately 1840 on. You no longer used strap rails uh, with uh, iron tops, wooden rails, what have you. So by 1825, the basic elements, two of the basic elements of the railroad had been developed. The power of steam and the use of rails, which not only carried the weight, but provided a self-guiding right-of-way. Now, you get on a road, take your car on the road or take your horse on the road. Somebody has to drive the horse and keep the horse on the road because the horse is going to want to run off on the side and eat grass. Uh, how many carts can you put behind a horse? Well, you might be able to get two or possibly even three, but that was about it. And besides, a horse has to have more horsepower the more weight he has to pull. So you could put horses in a row, you know, hitch one ahead of another, but that gets kind of clumsy. And uh, in other words, the self-guiding feature of a rail becomes very, very, very interesting because it means that one horse, and they were horses used originally on rails in some places, could haul more than one cart. You could put a string of four, five, six, seven, eight, ten carts together, and a horse could pull, perhaps not loaded, but a horse could pull more than one cart. Okay, so the second important factor in the invention of the railroad was the rail, the self-guiding right-of-way. There's also a third element that has to be considered. You can start the, the uh, train with a, with a steam locomotive or a horse, but uh, preferably a steam locomotive after the very earliest days, and you can run the train on the rail. But how do you stop it? If you can't stop, the invention is useless. If you can't stop where you want to stop, and the train just keeps running, as uh, you hear um, the laws of friction, uh, of friction say, the laws of um, the laws of physics say, if you can't stop, the train just keeps running. If there's nothing to, to hold it, if there's no force to hold it, now there is a force that sometimes you can use, and that force is friction, of course. You have to overcome the friction to make the train work. But friction is also going to allow the train to roll for a long time, and you can't tell it to stop a train at any one particular place. It stops when it runs out of power, and the friction overcomes the power. If you have a train that's going downhill, you've got an even worse problem, because gravity is pulling it downhill pulling it faster than you want to go, and you can't stop it without brakes. The earliest brakes were applied only on the locomotive, and as long as you weren't pulling many, many cars, you could get away with that. But in time, there had to be a much more efficient system of braking to stop a train. But from 1825 on, when George and Robert Stevenson first used their steam engine, the rocket, to pull a number of cars of coal, 
the railroad had been invented. And in 1825, it was used to pull coal. The first successful railroad in the world was called the Stockton and Darlington Line. And I grew up here in Chicago on the south side, and we have on the south side the Museum of Science and Industry, one of the great museums in the world. If you ever come to Chicago, you must not, by any chance, miss going to the Museum of Science and Industry. I've only seen one museum like it in the world, and that's in Germany, in Munich. And it isn't nearly as good as the Museum of Science and Industry. Um, the Museum of Science and Industry is dedicated to showing people how science and industry have changed our lives and made, uh, made the world we have today. Well, what did the Museum of Science and Industry have? A model of George Stevenson's rocket full-sized. And there, there you see it. It's standing there just the way it looked in 1825 when Mr. Stevenson opened the throttle for the first time and let the steam into the cylinders. Okay, so those are the two, the three big elements, the two that were in place, at least in uh, recognizable form by 1825, and the third, the brakes to come later. It wasn't long... In fact, it was very short before people began to think about how George and Robert Stevenson's invention, the railroad, could be used. In the beginning, the big use for railroads was to connect two waterways that had some kind of a barrier between them. In America, the first line built, chartered in 1829, was the Baltimore and Ohio. Now this takes a little bit of history to uh, tell you what's going on here. Because the state of New York in, I think it was 1820, completed after years of construction, 1825 I think actually, uh, years of construction, a canal connecting Buffalo, New York on Lake Erie with Albany on the Hudson River. And uh, the Mohawk River connected the two already, but the Mohawk had waterfalls in it. And to get around those, they built the Erie Canal. It was called the Erie Canal because it went to Lake Erie. The Erie Canal immediately, from the day it opened, began handling huge volumes of wheat, corn, uh, soybeans, whatever, whatever agricultural things were grown, lumber, coal, hay, uh, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. You know the old song? I got a mule, her name is Sal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. She's a good old worker and a good old pal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. We've hauled some barges in our day filled with lumber, coal, and hay, and we know every inch of the way from Albany to Buffalo. You can see Sal the mule with the, the singer standing, walking along beside her, pulling a barge on the Erie Canal. What makes this so important is 
that all of a sudden, with the aid of boats on the Great Lakes, you had a passageway from as far west as Minnesota and from the southern tip of Lake Michigan all the way by water to New York. And remember how water transport was the thing before the steam locomotive. Well, the Erie Canal was such a success that other cities on the East Coast decided they had to do something before they lost all their trade from the inland part of the country. Uh, Before New York, Boston had been a great port, one of the great ports, and Philadelphia had been a great port. Philadelphia in the 18th century was the largest English-speaking city in the world after London. It's hard to believe that, but it's true. Philadelphia was invented, well, not invented, (laughs) created by William Penn in 1682. So it was already an old city by the time the uh, 19th century rolled along. And it had a back country that extended roughly a hundred and something miles before you got to the Allegheny Mountains. And all of that trade from those uh, areas east of the Allegheny Mountains in Pennsylvania went to Philadelphia. All right, now here we have to talk about geography. I told you this is going to be a long, long discussion. Take a look at a relief map of the North American continent, and you will see that there are two, well, no, three major mountain ranges in the United States. There are the Appalachians or Alleghenies. The Alleghenies are actually part of the Appalachians. They start in Maine, and they go in a northeast to southwesterly direction all the way down from Maine into Alabama. Okay, now, that is a diagonal range of mountains, and it's actually several ranges of mountains with valleys in between, but collectively they're called the Appalachian Mountains. They are very near the seacoast in New England. In Maine, they come right down to the water. In New Hampshire and Vermont, they are called the Green Mountains in Vermont and the White Mountains in New Hampshire. But they're within 100 miles or so or less of the seacoast. In Massachusetts, they're close to 200 miles from the seacoast. And then into New York State and down into Pennsylvania, And they get further and further from the seacoast, the further south you get. Now, what does that mean? First, it means that ocean-going boats can come only a short distance up rivers in the New England states because the mountains are there and you can't make water go uphill and you can't make a boat go uphill over the water. So it meant that you had to take goods off of a canal boat or a horse vehicle or whatever and transship them by boat across the Atlantic. And cities grew up where those ports were. And every port city had an interior that fed its port. So in New England, you had ports very close to the the seashore and not much territory between that and the mountains. 
That in turn meant where there are mountains, you get waterfalls. And one of the reasons why the textile industry developed in New England in the 18th century was before you had steam power, water power turned the textile mills. And the water power is generated by waterfalls. And the waterfalls were close to the seacoast. Ergo, New England develops textile manufacturing very early because it has a power source convenient to the shipping points for overseas shipping. And secondly, the overseas ships can't go directly to the source uh, because the mountains are in the way. So anything that has to be sent to a port has to be transshipped. That's why New England seacoast cities like, uh, oh, Salem, uh, that's just one I remember offhand. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, Bangor, Maine. Uh, Portsmouth, what is it? What's the other one in Maine? Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine. Um, those all developed very early. In New York State, the mountains uh, form a barrier west of Albany, but the Mohawk River creates a valley between those mountains. Now, they had waterfalls in it, and they couldn't ship on water without building a canal around those uh, waterfalls. And so they did, and that means you had to have locks. Now, that's another another uh, problem with building canals, because locks are have to be built and maintained, and they are slow. Um, you can't run more than one boat in one direction at a time. So you get a line of boats lining up at a lock. If you take a cruise on the Mississippi today, you'll see the same thing. Your boat will stop and wait until a lock clears until it gets a chance to get into the locks and uh, be ridden, you know, uh, go up or down or whichever way it has to go. So canals were not an easy answer to the problems of uh, except. Except in New York State, where the Mohawk Valley existed already, and the Erie Canal was built with locks. In Pennsylvania, the mountains are far from the seacoast, and they're higher. And um, unfortunately, Pennsylvanians could not figure out a way to make water go uphill. (laughs) But they did figure out how to build a series of canals that would connect the western side of the Alleghenies, um, including Pittsburgh, where the Ohio River was, with Philadelphia. They did that about 1830 by building the Pennsylvania Main Line of Public Works. And that is such an interesting story that I'll tell you about more of it later. Boston had the worst problem of all, of all the big East Coast cities, because it had a very small interior before you got to waterfalls. And so Boston came up with the idea of building a tunnel through the mountains of western Massachusetts. The trouble was they didn't have the technology to build that kind of a tunnel at that time. 
it was started something like 1830, but it took took something like 17 years to build the tunnel. And by that time, the Erie Canal had decimated Boston's internal trade. Boston has never gotten over that. That's why Boston has hated New York. And you see it when the Red Sox play the Yankees, and you see it when the Knickerbockers play the Celtics, and the Rangers play the Bruins, and Boston people hate New York, and New Yorkers look down on Boston. And it's all the result of the Erie Canal and the mountains. All right, now we get to Philadelphia. And Philadelphia did something akin to what Massachusetts tried to do, but in a different way, and I'll talk about that, as I say, a little bit later. The fourth great East Coast city was Boston, was Baltimore, rather. Baltimore did not grow big until the beginning of the 19th century. And Baltimore didn't have the barriers that Philadelphia had as further west, so Baltimore had a more easily reached interior. But it didn't have a river that went the right way. Uh, the Potomac isn't navigable too far inland. And the Potomac goes to, not to Baltimore, it goes to the side of Washington, D.C. So Baltimore didn't have a good approach inland. People in Baltimore looked at the Stockton and Darlington Railroad in England. And the promoters of the city of Baltimore said, what if we could build a railroad to the Ohio River? And they decided they were going to try it. The newfangled contraption called the railroad. At first, they didn't know how to power it. They tried using a horse on a treadmill. The treadmill, the horse would run on the treadmill, and the treadmill would turn the wheels, and that would be an engine. Well, that didn't prove to be very successful because it was still just a horse, and you could hitch a horse to a cart automatically without the treadmill. Yeah. And you didn't get any, any benefit from the treadmill car. They tried a sail car. They tried to take the technology of the sailboat and convert it to power a vehicle on rails. Needless to say, that didn't work very well. What if the wind's not blowing the right direction? Yeah. A, whole, a ship has many sails and uh, huge tall masts, but you can't do that on land. You can't have huge tall masts on land. There are things, objects that get in the way, and uh, uh, you, the sail car was not practical. An inventor from New York, whose name was Peter Cooper, the never-to-be-forgotten Peter Cooper, never to be forgotten because the Cooper Union in New York City is today still an educational institution developed to technology, and it has been for, what, close to 200 years now. Uh, Peter Cooper built a steam-powered locomotive. It wasn't very powerful, and it was worked partly by belts, you know, um, belts of uh, leather, uh, that connected the gears, but it did work, and they tried it out on the tracks that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad was building, and it was a very big success until one day a horse owner challenged 
the uh, Tom Thumb, which was what Peter Cooper called his engine, because it was very small. And the horse owner said, uh, my horse can beat your machine. And Peter Cooper took the challenge and said, okay, we'll have a race. Well, the Tom Thumb was doing just fine and uh, ahead of the horse until all of a sudden one of the belts broke. And Peter Cooper's engine stopped still. And the horse comes galloping by, ha, 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 the horse laugh. And that was the end of the Peter Cooper's uh, steam locomotive. However, that race was the greatest Pyrrhic victory since Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus was the Greek general who fought the Romans and uh, won a battle, but had so many casualties in his army that he said afterwards, one more like that, and I'm finished. <laughs> a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that turns out to be no, not a success, but a, but a defeat. Well, the horse won a Pyrrhic victory that day because the Baltimore and Ohio's directors decided on the steam engine as their mode of power, only it had to be a lot bigger and more solidly built than Peter Cooper's Tom Thumb. Ira, with that, yes. I think we Are better we wind it up today for part one. A fabulous lecture. What can I say? You started with history of transportation. I kept saying, when are we getting to railroads? But you set the stage. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. We can do another one next month. We'll do it. Any you way? want to do another one next month? Any questions? Sure. We hardly what? even started with this story, you know. I know. So we'll do it next month, I promise. I I thought we were going to be um, oh you're wondering more than one of these. All right, so well, let's arrange a date for sometime in November, and uh, you can uh, chew over all I've said, and uh, like the horse, um, give me a horse laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ira, very very much. Does anybody want to ask questions? Any questions from any? Uh, I, this may be kind of ahead of the scale, but was steam used in uh, like farm equipment? No, I can't hear what what's being oh. said. Can you? What steam used with farm equipment? Yes. Can you hear me? Ira, uh, uh, Bob, can you repeat what's being yes, said? Yes, I will. What steam used with farm equipment? She wants to know at this time. I'm sorry, say that again? Was steam used with farm equipment at this time, the 1830s? Steam, was it used uh, to power farm equipment, like tractors and whatever? We're not I'll getting tell it? you what, I'm going to see if Rachel can hear this. Okay. I can't. Put Rachel on. I do that all the time with your fan. Uh, wait a second, what is it? Hi, Rachel. What, my wife wants to know was steam used with farm equipment in the 1830s. Did they move it, you know, use it for farm equipment as well? Uh, like tractors and whatever. Let farm me see equipment. if I've understood it, and I'll say it loud enough for Ira to hear. Okay. You, uh, was steam used for farm equipment? Is that? Yes, at that time. At that time. Well, the answer is yes, steam was used for farm equipment, but not that early. Okay, that's uh, what you wanted to know. The big revolution in farming equipment came about the time of the Civil War because so many men were away at the armies, and it created a need for manpower, in many cases women power, mm. took the place of manpower. But uh, neither manpower nor woman power could match machine power, steam power, 
and steam farm equipment is still in existence. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's something called the Old Midwest Threshers uh, meeting every year. It takes place in Iowa, and it's a gathering of all these steam-powered farm implements. It's just fascinating stuff. Well, I really want to thank you, you so know? much, and well, we'll be back one with you. you in a couple of months. I've got another another incident for you. Okay. Uh, do you know the 20-mule team Borax box? Yes. All right. You know what replaced the 20-mule team Borax box? The Borax wagons? No. The wagon was very heavy, and somebody designed a steam engine that would run on the road. Oh my gosh. And the steam road engine replaced the 20-mule team. And if you go up to Death Valley today, there uh-huh. is one of those steam road machines oh. still in existence. I'm, I'm going to do it. We're going to go up there. I will thank you so much, and we'll see you in a couple of months. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you very much. I hope everybody had fun. We and did. We'll do, it's it. wonderful. we'll do another one next month sometime. Thank you, Ira. I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay, bye now. Thank Good you, night. Don, and others. Okay, here we go. Good night.